Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman. A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So a common theme we write about on the website is big picture strategic thinking, how we can become better, more critical thinkers. Uh, so we said we've done content about the OODA loop, psychological biases that get in the way of us making good decisions that help us live a good life. Anyways, today on the show, I have a man who has dedicated his career, his life to improving strategic thinking and critical thinking in life and death situations. His name is Tom Ruby. He served 26 years in active duty positions in the United States Air Force, from squadron intelligence officer to chief of doctrine for the Air Force Intelligence Surveillance and Reconnaissance Enterprise. He's also the chief of special programs for Air Force material. And he was also on General Petraeus' joint strategic assessment team during the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. So this is a man who has dedicated himself to writing documents that have been used in the military developing strategy and how not only officers but soldiers on the ground can think more critically in life and death situations. Anyways, fascinating, fascinating character. And today on the show, Tom and I discuss thinking strategically, how we can do it better. We discuss how we can think critically. And so whether you are a guy working for a corporation or you own your own business, knowing how to strategize is something that will get you far in life. So we discuss the the topics, the subtopics you should focus on in order to become a better strategizer. And among other things, we discuss Ender's Game and what Ender from Ender's Game can teach us about leadership and strategic thinking. Anyway, fascinating discussion. I think you'll like it. You get a lot of takeaways, you get a lot of good nuggets there that you can start applying to your life today. So without further ado, Tom Ruby on strategic thinking. Tom Ruby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Brett. It's really good to be here. I'm a, I'm a huge fan from your early days. All right. Well, thank, I really appreciate that. So let's uh, let's start with your story because it's really interesting. So you are right now an expert and consultant on strategic planning and critical thinking. But how did you get to this point? You actually have a pretty interesting background story. Can you give us up to date on how you got to where you are now? Sure. Um, it's odd. I've almost – it's in some ways, I've lived almost a Forrest Gump-like life. I mean, I've been in the right place at the right time, not of my own doing necessarily, but um, Providence puts you there, and 
And I think a lot of times it's, you know, do you make the most of uh, your, your opportunities? I was born in Belgrade, Serbia, um, which was then Yugoslavia behind the Iron Curtain. My mother's family were royalists um, who supported the crown and the pre-war government against the Germans and Tito's communists during World War II. So that set us up as enemies of the state when Tito came into power. Um, when I was a year old, my mom and dad took me and did a no-kidding overnight escape um, out of the country. They made their way to Paris and then on to Los Angeles. Um, I, work up in a, I grew up in a working-class home um, where my mom and dad both worked. Uh, my dad worked two jobs. I played football in high school and decided to go to the Air Force Academy after a recruiting visit there. Um, I played football, and that was fun, but I had a really, really tough time with the military side of the experience at first, and that was my first real taste of the need to turn um, you know, to what you espouse as the art of manliness. I realized that I was constantly making excuses, and I needed to be more disciplined um, in, my, in my life and in my skills and my studies. Um, like you discussed with Dr. J in the episode on why your 20s are important, you become manly by doing manly things. Um, but taking responsibility was a big one for me. After I graduated, got married um, to my, my wife, and I was still married to my friend, we went off to our first duty assignment in South Carolina, and I was an intelligence officer in an F-16 wing. Um, I noticed really early on that we were training for combat missions with a methodology that could potentially prove disastrous. Um, everybody at that time, was it was about how low can you go, how fast and how low can you fly. Um, and it was almost without regard to what the threat was going to be from the other side. Um, trying to explain that to my leadership was difficult because when you've done something for so long, it always seems right. That makes sense. <laughs> um, so when we deployed the Desert Shield in 1990, um, I, I really slowly and methodically showed my leadership um, why I thought that we needed to make a change from low-level tactics to higher altitude to give us a better chance of survivability. Um, we did make that change, and a bunch of the other wings uh, that were deployed also did the same thing. But it took several months to, to train to, to fly the new way. And then on the very first night of the war, um, back in 1991, those guys that flew in low were the first ones that got hit, you know, by anti-aircraft fire and surface-to-air missiles. And really, by the next day, um, everybody had changed our tactics. So when I returned from the war, the Air Force sent me to graduate school for the first time. Um, and between a whole series of, um, you know, going back to school and going to operational deployments and back to school and operational deployments, I got to... Um, apply some of the concepts I learned uh, about in school or read about from other people. And I also got a chance to learn how to really patiently build momentum behind ideas. Um, that's both within your peer group and with your leadership, you know, to implement new ideas. So in 1997, I found myself deployed to Saudi Arabia uh, at the headquarters enforcing the no-fly zone in Iraq. Um, our American, British, and French pilots were coming back every day saying that they were targeted by Iraqi surface-to-air missiles south of the no-fly zone line. But nobody in D.C. would believe anything they said. They were like, oh, these are just cowboy pilots, you know, they're making it all up. And I'd get on the phone and say, why would anybody make that stuff up? And they'd say, well, because there's nothing there. 
And I say, well, could you look? Could you actually look and move some of our Intel assets over there to look? And they'd say, why would we want to waste an asset to look for something that's not there? So, I mean, it was just really circular reasoning. And, again, you know, trying to build up some, some momentum among peers, I, I, I found some really good young people who were able to help. And we convinced the Intel people one day to move some sensors to, to look where we were telling them to look. And suddenly, all these threats are there that weren't there to them the day before. And in their logic, oh my gosh, they just moved this stuff down. The only reason they could be doing this is because they're getting ready to invade. And we're telling them this stuff has been there for months. Okay? Um, that was a really powerful lesson for me. Um, you don't have to know everything in the world. But for the things that you're responsible for, you can't assume anything away. Um, after that, I was, uh, I was uh, selected to go get a Ph.D., um, and the light bulb really went off for me when I started taking uh, methodology and critical thinking courses. That gave me a template for the first time um, to, you know, to, to think about um, how to apply the things that I was learning to actual, you know, real-world situations of life and death. Um, when I came back from getting my Ph.D., I was sent to Baghdad um, to conduct the, the Iraqi campaign progress review. I worked with a, an awesome British colonel, and we were just astounded by the lack of preparation um, from on everybody's standpoint for this huge international undertaking. Um, strategic planning is not a secret formula, Brett. I mean, you can find any number of checklists on the web um, that will take any family, any business, or any government entity through a process to get you where you want to achieve. But the U.S. military and our allies had gotten really lazy in the prospects about thinking about war. Um, we show over and over again that when we get into a fight, we win the fight, and we can win every fight but lose the entire war um, because we don't think through the long term. Um, then when I came home from Baghdad for the last eight years of my career through three different assignments, really I spent a lot of time on the road. I mean, countless weeks on the road giving seminars on critical thinking, strategic planning, and leadership development. I was asked to be on General Petraeus's Joint Strategic Assessment Team, um, which assessed the U.S. and allied strengths, weaknesses, and options in the entire Middle East and the Central Asia region. That, result, um, that resulted in a report that General Petraeus put on President Obama's desk right after his inauguration. And it got me thinking about what I wanted to do afterwards um, when I retired. I mean, because I couldn't stay in uniform forever. But um, I knew that I'd have lots of opportunities to get in with one of the big Beltway firms after I retired. Um, but my wife and I had really, for a long time, wanted to get out of the city and move to our farm. So something um, there was something that a friend told me years before that resonated with me. He was a small-town newspaper editor. And he'd been courted by the New York Times for years. And he said, people in small towns deserve good journalism, too. And, and that, that really made an impact with me. And I, and I thought, you know, people, people in small towns and small and medium businesses deserve good consulting that's affordable as well. Um, so that's when I started thinking about how to do this and settle, settle down into, uh, you know, having a, building up a small consultancy that's networked with other good thinkers 
and that's what I do today. All right, so you basically take the things you learned, um, the skills and expertise you developed during your military career, and help organizations think strategically. So let's talk about what is, okay, maybe we're going down a rabbit hole, but what is strategy, right? Like, what is, what's the difference between like strategy, tactics, doctrine? How would you define that? That's a, those are, those are brilliant questions. Okay. Um, before you can start with strategy is what links the ends that you want to achieve with the means that you have to do it. Okay. So if you, if you think in from, from priority or from time priority, what comes first, you should always have a policy, i.e. what is it that we want to do? Okay. I want to go do this. So the what is your policy or your desired end, okay? Strategy is the how. Strategy is the how you can do it. So if you live, you know, if you live in Oklahoma and you want to go to New York City, okay, your goal is to get to New York City. There's a multiple different ways of how you can do that, right? You can get on an airplane. You can drive a car. Um, you can take a train. You can hitchhike. I mean, there's lots of different ways to do it in combinations of those things, too. And then you and, and strategy links the means by which you have it. If you don't have a ton of money, well, you can still get there, right? It might take you a little bit longer if you hitchhike, right? If you have a lot of money, well, you can, you know, charter an airplane um, or build yourself a hot air balloon. So strategy is the idea of connecting the what you want to do with the means that you have at your disposal to, to best figure out the way to do it. So, you know, I'm always thinking, trying to become a better strategist. Um, and so are there particular subtopics that individuals should study or research and read about so that they become better strategists? Yeah, I mean... I think the best thing that you can do to be a, a strategist is to, is to make yourself a critical thinker. And, and really to do that, you have to, you have to think really, really broadly. So not just one subject, not just be an expert in one thing, but try to learn as much as you can about as many different things. And I mean, you do this on your site. If you look at the manly skills, right, on art of manliness, there's, you got pages and pages and pages of these things. And, once you get good at one of these things, it's going to help you get good at others, okay? And so, first of all, to, to be a good strategist, um, you have to be able to think broadly beyond just, you know, one little thing at one time, okay? So I recommend that people pick up all kinds of books, okay? Not just history books, because you'll get a lot of guys that'll say, well, you know, the only really manly books are biographies and history. And, and I think that those are very manly, okay? But biographies and histories can tell you what happened to a person or at an event in a given time, given a certain context. But if the context today is different, then the variables today are going to be different than they were back then. And, you know, if you follow the same, you know, the same steps that somebody did in, in, another, in another case that was different from yours, you're going to come up with a different um, result. So, 
you know, I really recommend to people to, to read fiction, um, to read novels, to read histories, to read biographies, um, to read books uh, outside of their comfort zone. And, you know, I recommend to my own clients to spend an hour a day during your, during your job, during your duty day, to, to read um, and go look at something outside of what you do, okay? Um, there's a great Harvard Business Review article in, from 2009 on the innovator's DNA. It's called the innovator's DNA. And they talk about the, the top CEOs are those guys that, that go around and look at not just their businesses and their segment of industry, but other segments of industry or, or other industries altogether. Uh, I have a client now that, that was just saying that he goes out and he looks at how fruits are arranged at hotels and wonders about how he can make his business, you know, how he can take that lesson and apply it to his own business. That's what makes a good strategy, okay, is continually pushing the boundaries of the possible, okay, not just, you know, when, when you see people in tests, right, that are given, you know, that are given like a, a, a rope and a nail. What can you do with this? And it's the children that always come up with the, the, most, the most outrageous ideas that are really cool, right? Because people have, they haven't grown up enough where people tell, tell them that's dumb or you shouldn't do that, right? And, and I think that if you constantly challenge yourself to, to see the world in new ways, that's going to help you be the best strategy around. So this sounds uh, very somewhat similar to like John Boyd's thinking with the OODA loop where you, uh, the idea, you know, you know, in order to become a better strategist and in order to succeed at the OODA loop, you need to develop as many mental models as possible from a wide variety of fields. What's amazing with his OODA loop, like he's, he brought in just to develop that he brought in several different mental models from, from thermodynamics to cybernetics to quantum physics, just to develop that idea. But it, but by cross-pollinating all those different theorems and ideas from science, he's able to come up with this very simple mental model for uh, success in the battlefield and success in any type of conflict. You know, Brett, you're absolutely right. Um, to piggyback on what you're just talking about, John Boyd, um, Scott Page, okay, P-A-G-E, from uh, University of Michigan, uh, published a book in, I think it was 2010, it might have been 2009, called the difference and it was it was a look at at how expertise is almost in every case trumped by diversity and you know james surowiecki in his book the wisdom of crowds kind of wrote about that and a lot of people poo-pooed that but what page does is he goes and and says you can find any expert in any field and ask him a question and almost invariably, if you ask, you know, a random group of people who know nothing about or that are not experts in that field, the same question and take the mean answer, it's always going to be more accurate than the, uh, than the experts. Um, and, and that's what made Boyd, that's what made Boyd so brilliant, but it's also what made Boyd so threatening, um, you know, to his own leadership, Okay. Leadership in almost any business, and especially in the military, are threatened by guys, um, you know, people that 
that try to bring in ideas that are outside of the experience of that organization. So you were saying you, you've written an article how the military is anti-intellectual. And is this what you mean by being anti-intellectual? They're just, they're not open to new ideas? Um, in, in a sense, yes. I mean, the article was, the original title of the article was the, the impact of anti-intellectualism in the U.S. military. But, you know, it got, it got changed when it was published in the American Interest. But the, the real point there is that anti-intellectuals are not dumb, okay? They're actually really intelligent people, but they value experience and doing over thinking, okay? Uh, Richard Hofstetter wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book called Anti-Intellectualism in American Life in 1969. Um, and, you know, one of the Art of Manliness's favorites, Teddy Roosevelt, um, he played a significant role, albeit not purposefully, in the anti-intellectual movement, okay? Teddy Roosevelt was a fierce intellectual, right? But he was also a doer, okay? And when he wrote when he wrote his famous poem, The Man in the Arena, right, that still resonates today. And what you'll get is you'll get people that are just doers and they don't they can't take anybody asking them, how do you know that's gonna work? Okay? They'll say, Hey man, I'm the guy in the arena. I've been there. Okay? I'll give you an example. Um, when I was in Baghdad, we were gonna go quote do Fallujah, unquote, for the fourth time, okay? And the colonel that was doing the planning for the, uh, for the operation, I went over to him and I just asked him, is, is this, if we do this again tomorrow, is it going to necessarily and deliberately lead us to the attainment of our objectives? And he said, that's the problem with you pointy-headed, pointy-headed ivory tower academic types. You know nothing about war, okay? And, I mean... First, it's really condescending, but second, it also shows a lack of willingness to consider that even the possibility that there might be a better way or that you might be wrong. Um, Mike Warden wrote a book called Rise of the Fighter Generals, and, and, he, and he makes a brilliant case that when the Strategic Air Command was at its ascendancy, not only within the Air Force, but within the Department of Defense, I mean... You know, Curtis LeMay was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and we had SAC generals that were in all the key positions. They got so, they became ossified in his, in Mike Warden's words, you know, um, like petrified wood, because they were so fixated on training and sitting alert that they didn't think, and they didn't think outside, you know, their own day to day activities. And while they were just sitting alert and training, the bomber guys, or sorry, the fighter guys, were sending their best officers to schools and sending them to career broadening assignments and sending them overseas to exchanges. And almost overnight, without even realizing it, the bomber generals found themselves on the out and out, and then the fighter generals were in ascendancy. And yet today, those same fighter generals have ossified at least as much, if not more so, than, um, than the bomber guys did um, from that time. From that time, and, and Boyd is a great example. John Boyd isn't even discussed or mentioned among Air Force leadership um, today. But when I wrote that article on anti-intellectualism, and it was published back in 2009, um, a couple of colonels on the at the Pentagon said, "Dude, this is going to end your career." And and I said, "If I'm right in what I wrote, 
then the senior leadership either won't even know that the article exists, or if they do stumble upon it, they won't do anything. Um, I ended up getting a lot of feedback from people in other branches of government and in industry, but not a single word from anybody in senior leadership. So as far as outside the military, I think Hofstetter's, um, Hofstetter's still right. Anti-intellectualism is still strong. Again, he doesn't say that anti-intellectuals aren't smart, but they just value doing over thinking. And what you see today is the best companies, the most successful companies out there are the ones that meld the two together, okay, that, that, that find the practitioner scholar, okay, that finds the person that can think and do at the same time, that can constantly say, how can I do this better, that is a, that's an outstanding practitioner, but is also aware of what's the latest thing out there that I can use. So I think there is a tendency for any, I mean, individuals, organizations to, you get comfortable, right? Something's worked before yep. and you, so yep. you keep doing it and then you run into a, to a problem and the typical response for organizations or for people even is that, well, the problem is I just need to do more of what I have been doing and that yeah. will fix things. Yeah. Harder, better, longer. Harder, better, longer, work right? Harder, work longer and, and we need to be better. But at some point you have to ask yourself. How will I know, I mean, what are, what are my criteria going to be to know that this doesn't work, okay? So when people say to me, we just need to work harder, we need to work better, and we need to work longer, I say, okay, at what point are you going to know whether or not that works? And, and it's, not a, it's, it's not a challenge. It's a serious question. When will you know if that worked or not? So... You know, I think one of the things that you should always think about in critical thinking, this comes from Alec Fisher's book, The Logic of Real Argument. Really, really good book. That, you know, there's a few books that I, that I always gave my, my direct subordinates that worked for me, and this was one of them, um, The Logic of Real Argument. And he, he, he starts off by saying, it's amazing what you can figure out about a subject just by thinking about it. And you think to yourself, well, duh. But really, there's some, there's some profoundness there when he says, ask yourself some basic questions. Um, if that's true, what should I expect to see? So that's one of the questions that I always challenge my, you know, my mentorees and my clients with when they say, well, this is going to happen. And I'll, and I'll say, okay, if that's true, what should we expect to see? Okay, and how long are you going to give it to see that? Um, another question is, what would I have to know or accept in order to believe that to be true? All right. What would I have to know or accept in order to believe that to be true? And another simple question is, how do I know? Okay. Um, we a very very critical part of planning. Okay, strategic planning and critical thinking is listing all of your assumptions. Okay. We go through life, Brett, we really do, right? We go through life assuming that certain things are going to happen. And um, at, some, at some level, to, to get anywhere, you have to, like, for example, if you're going to make your trip from Oklahoma to, to New York City and you're going to drive, it's a reasonable assumption that you're going to have find open gas stations along the way, right? Um, but there may be lots of other assumptions 
um, that, that, that you make without even thinking about it. And so one of them would be that lots of people make is they get in the car and they don't realize that they've made an assumption that they're not going to get a flat tire the whole way there, right? Yeah. And when they get a flat, they open up their trunk and they got a spare, okay, and they've got the jack, but they don't have that little mechanism that hooks into the jack to spin around, right? And so, and you say, well, I didn't know that. Well, that's because you, you made an assumption that you wouldn't need it, all right? And it's, it's really, it's a very difficult step in the strategic planning process, and maybe the most critical of all the steps in the strategic planning process, to sit yourself down or your leadership team, whoever it is that's going to be doing your plan with you, and to, no kidding, list out all of the assumptions that you're, that you're making, okay, for, the, for whatever the foreseeable time frame is that you're working. And then you aggressively challenge those assumptions and then try to validate them, okay? So if somebody wants to open a restaurant, right, I, I was helping somebody that opened a restaurant and they couldn't understand why their restaurant was empty on a Wednesday night, okay? Well, we said in the South, people go to church on Wednesday night. And they said, well, who goes to church on a Wednesday night? <laughs> and we said, well, you see, here's, here you are. You're, you're opening a business with a fundamental assumption that's, that hasn't been validated. And those are just simple ones. But, uh, here's another one. If you're going to open your restaurant, okay, if you're going to have a specialty-type restaurant that serves a certain type of specialty food, you need to know that your supplier is going to be able to deliver it to you all the days that you need it, right? Yeah. And so we go through life, whether it's in a family or whether it's in a small business or whether it's in a county government or whether it's in a, a large military, um, starting operations without having, sat, without having actually listed and challenged and validated your assumptions. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme, cargo capacity means more room for your gear, and there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, so if you're like me, you've probably signed up for a whole bunch of stuff that has a recurring monthly fee. Subscriptions to newsletters, subscriptions to services that you use online, uh, could be a streaming service, something like that. You sign up for it and then you forget about it. And then every month you're getting charged and charged and charged and they just all add up and you have a hard time trying to figure out where did I sign up for this? I don't know where this is coming from. Well, let me tell you, there's an app that can help you with that. It's called Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. I had a chance to use Rocket Money and it works. You connect your account to it and then it goes through your accounts and helps you find those recurring subscription fees that maybe you forgot about and then you can cancel them and save yourself a bit of money each month. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash manliness. That's rocketmoney.com slash manliness, rocketmoney.com slash manliness. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. I really love that idea. And I can see that being very helpful on a, just like on the individual level. So I think a lot of people have their goals frustrated because they don't even, they don't stop to think about those assumptions and question those assumptions that they have that, you know, cause they don't think about, well, I got this goal to, I don't know, get this job at X pl- place. And then they don't think about, well, there's going to be lots of other people competing for it. Um, maybe there's something will happen with the business that they won't allow me to get that job. You know, they have to, they have to take back on or roll back on uh, hiring, for example. So yeah, I like that idea. Before you, well, I mean, even something as simple as you know, if you want to build a treehouse, right? Um, it, you can save yourself ten trips below by sitting down and writing out the things that you need. Yeah, you know. Um, or, yeah, no, I got plenty of that in the garage. I got plenty of those nails. I do that all the time. You know, I got plenty of those screws. Well, think about this. It's, it's not unmanly, okay? It is not unmanly to go check to see if you actually have the screws that you think you do, okay? In fact, I would say that it's far manlier to, to, go, to go check yourself and to make one trip instead of having to make a whole bunch of trips, you know, because you say, well, crap, I really thought I had 
I really thought I had what I needed. Yeah, I, I do that all the time. <laughs> Whenever I have a, a project around the house, I end up making like five trips to Home Depot. One thing that I've helped too, so besides checking first, is also when you're at Home Depot, whenever you're there, buy more than you think you're going to need. Amen. That's right. right. Because you're going to need them next time. Exactly. Or even if it's not a next time, like, you know, assume that you're going to mess up the first time and you're going to need that extra material. So that's my bit of life advice there for you guys. Yeah. You're going to do stuff around I your house. Buy extra. Completely agree with you. And I did my tree house with my, with my kids a couple years ago. It, it was great to have a whole pouch of extra screws with me you know, 16 feet up in the trees because you can't get mad at the kids when they drop a screw. Yeah. You know, they're just trying just to help. More. So here's a, here's a question I have. So you were talking about, we were talking about John Boyd and, uh, yeah. and you, um, getting that feedback saying that your career is going to be over for this article that you wrote. Uh, and, and John Boyd had that, you know, same sort of problem. Like he didn't get, he didn't inv- advance past l- Lieutenant Colonel, I believe. Um, in his career, he should have been a general, I think, but that didn't colonel, happen for yeah. him. Yeah, he should have been a general, but he was a colonel. He was a colonel, right? So here's a question I have: So how do you balance, right? So you know, Boyd said that you can either be someone or do something in life. That's brilliant. And, and to be someone, you you in, in the military or any organization, you sort of have to be a yes man, sort of go with the flow, don't rock the boat. But if you want to do something, you have to, um, you know, buck, you know piss people off for lack of a better word and you're going to hurt so your career that, it's so funny that you say that you know but you were going to say buck the system weren't you yeah i was going to say buck the system but you know you, you it seems that you just piss people off you irritate them you so know, so how do you balance that i mean so there's a, there's a part of me where i'm like yeah i'm going to like you know stick to the man i want to do something but at the same time you're like well i got a family right um if i lose my job or if my career doesn't advance like that's not going to just hurt me it's going to hurt you know my kids who have nothing to do with this so, how do you? I mean, what's your insight? How do you? How do you balance that? Well, I gotta support my family, so I kind of have to go along. But at the same time, I'll actually want to do something. Um, right. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant question, um, and it's a, it's a, it's a genuine and legitimate concern that people have, and it's a really legitimate concern. But I will tell you that it starts with a mindset. Okay. And that mindset is not that you either buck the system or go along. Okay, on on the day of my promotion to colonel, my my absolutely loving wife, who's who's really quiet and normally shy, told somebody, "See, he bucked the system and still got promoted." And I and I really gently asked her not to say that again because I didn't buck the system. I look for an alternative path within the system. And so that's the mindset that that I took is instead of fighting the system, look to see if there's an alternative path within it. Okay. Um, There's a respectful way that we can say to our bosses and to our peers that we can do better instead of saying, hey, we stink. Right. You can. Advancing your career by going along is time-honored, right? The Japanese culture, the, the Japanese corporate culture in which the salaryman says, man, when I'm going to be a manager, I'm going to change things. But when he to get there, he has to be so completely co-opted by the system that he can't make the changes that, that he wanted to make. Um, so how, how do you make that change? First, you have to understand that any meaningful change is going to be slow change, okay? You've you heard 
I know that you've read countless articles about disruptive change, right? Yeah. People always say, yeah, we need disruptive change. Actually, disruptive change is not really helpful, okay? D- disruption um, really disrupts people's lives. It disrupts your operations, okay? And that disruption often fails because people can't cope with the pace of the change. So if it's really important, if it's worth doing, then it's worth doing slowly, okay, and by building up a snowball. So that's what I always found um, the best way to do things. I'd start by making sure that my ideas are going to work, okay? I'd patiently, you know, I'd try to patiently pitch my ideas to colleagues that I would really trust to tell me, you know, to wave the BS flag if, if they needed to or to say, hey, man, I think that can really work, okay? You listen to their input. Then you go to your boss, okay? One of my maxims is that they can't say no if you don't ask. I tell all my clients and I tell all my mentorees that you'd be amazed at what your bosses will let you do if you just ask them, okay? And if you think about this from a sociology standpoint, it makes sense because the boss will get the credit if it works and he won't take the blame if it doesn't, Yeah. right? So always look to make things better wherever you are. Um, be ready to show your... Be ready to show your supportive reasoning, okay? Now, I've had guys say, I think we should do this. And I feel, why do you think that's going to work? And they say, why do I have to give you evidence, man? Why can't I just tell you what I think? <laughs> and the answer is, well, really, because nobody gives a crap what you think if you can't show any evidence, right? So your gut feel is never going to be sufficient reasoning. But when you can come to your boss with, with a good idea and with some evidence, you're, you'll be really surprised at how often... Um, that one change will lead to a cascade of changes that will make the company a new place and it'll give you opportunities to rise. So play the long game. Is, is uh, absolutely. I mean, if you're, you know, now listen, you can't play the long game if, if and, and there's nothing wrong with this, if you're, if you're hopping from job to job to job, okay, you can't play the long game for any of the companies. You can play the long game for yourself, okay, but you're never going to make meaningful change in, in those companies. Gotcha. So you, you wrote an interesting article I thought was fascinating. It was about Ender's Game, right? And like you, mm-hmm. I was late to the game on this book because, like, I always thought it was a book. I didn't read it when I was a kid. It's sort of a book geared towards young adults. And, yeah, I just never read it. But I finally got around to it, and it's an awesome book. If you haven't read Ender's Game yet, read it. But you wrote an article that Ender can actually teach us a lot about strategic planning, leadership, and within large organizations. So what can Ender teach us about being better strategists and better leaders? Yeah, listen, like you, I was a really late comer to Ender's game. I had, you know, from the time I was in my early 20s, I had people recommending to me to read Ender's game. And then when I was at in, in grad school, get my PhD, a professor says to me, you've never read Ender's Game? <laughs> At that point, I said, all right, this is dumb. I went and I bought the paperback. And, and it was like a gut punch. I mean, it was a total gut punch. What an idiot I was for not having read this book. And um, then I had an opportunity to meet Orson Scott Carr when he came to Lexington on a book tour. And I, you know, I stood in line with everybody else and and uh, I just thanked him for, for what he said. And he looks up and he says, yeah, you don't look like everybody else in this line. <laughs> and I said, oh. And he asked me what I 
did, and I told her what I was doing, and that led to a, a long correspondence and a really close friendship. And, and I brought him to the to the staff college when I was a, a vice dean of the Air Command and Staff College to speak a couple of times. And he asked me to write um, a chapter on Ender on leadership um, for his book Ender's World. And I really think that you know people lose the people lose sight of a really important fact of this book is that Scott Card didn't set out to write a book about science fiction or the future. He set out to write a book about sociology and moral situations and dilemmas, you know, and how to face those. And and that's where I think the, the real leadership and manhood skills come in, okay? Um, the, first, the first lesson from Ender's Game is that skill and excellence are a means to advancement and a threat to your peers and to your bosses. <laughs> um, so if you're really good at what you do, let your work speak for itself, okay? Be humble. Second, um... If what you're doing doesn't work well, at some point you have to consider that doing it again and again and again also won't work well. Find another way. Think through alternatives. Look for those people around you that have good ideas and then lift them up by empowering them to try their own ideas and practice. This is exactly how Ender built his team. He was given the dregs that nobody else wanted, right? And what did he do with them? He found what each one of those you know, kids was best at and use them for that at the right time. All right. He realized that everyone had different capabilities, but he made the most of every person's best and put them where they were needed most when they were needed. most. Then Ender does something else that's really hard for all of us. I mean, I think this is one of the most important things that we can get out of strategic planning and critical thinking. Ender accepts the world as it is, not how he'd like it to be. Right. Mm. So many people get hung up on obstacles and they complain about something that complain do anything about. And then they start banging on their steering wheel, right? What's the only thing that's gonna fix the flat? You getting out and fixing the flat, right? Um, and then again I mentioned above being humble. Um, Andrew was never too proud to ask for help and he made it and, and to make others better. The best leaders in any field of industry aren't measured by what they do. They're measured by, I think, okay, how many of their own former subordinates are promoted or hired away to other leadership jobs, okay? That was Ender, okay? They took every one of his kids and made them commanders. That's awesome. And, and, and I think that, you know, I, I, I try to tell my clients, I try to tell my mentorees, you've really made it if your people get hired away from you. Hmm. It's a good thought. I actually, I had a... When I before I did the whole art of manless thing full time, had a boss uh, who was like that. I decided to. Um, I told him, "Yeah, I'm going to do this thing full time. I have to quit." I felt really bad leaving because he was a good guy, and he's like, "No, that's awesome. Do it. I think that's fantastic." And um, yeah, there's like no grudges. He was like, he was happy for me, and I thought that was that to me that was like a sign of like a good manager. Amen. Amen. So, so um, here's a question I have, and you, you know, you, you talk about critical thinking, but are there biases that you see over and over again that cause the most problems for leaders and organizations? Yeah, there sure are, and I think uh, you know Steve Levitt and Steve Dubner are freaking awesome. They'll tell you that. Have you ever heard them say what the three hardest words in the English language are? It's, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I found this to be spot on. The, the greatest mistake that senior leaders can make is lacking the humility to consider that there's something that they're not doing right or to admit that there's something that they don't know. You know, you were talking a little while ago about organizations that have been doing things the same way for a long time. They expect that tomorrow is going to look just like today, right? Well, the sun's risen the last, you know, eight days. It's going to raise, rise again tomorrow. That's pretty good. Not invented here is a huge bias that hurts organizations. On the other hand, the most successful organizations and leaders are those who make it part of their culture for people to interact outside their own specialty. Okay, so if if you're a, you know if you know if, if, it doesn't really matter if you're a, if you're a lawyer and you can talk about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle somehow or another that's going to make you a better lawyer. Okay, um, if you can talk about um, the sociology of um, power distance indices, okay, and you know who's going to talk to you and give you bad news and who won't um, when you really need to hear it. The, just stepping outside of your bounds and being willing to say, I don't know, help me. Um, I think that's the, that's the most important bias that, that any leader needs to get over. I think it's an important one because I, one thing I noticed too with people who succeed in one area and they become a leader, uh, they have a tendency, and I think other people have this tendency too, to see them as experts in a wide variety of topics, Right. So like a doctor, a lot of people do this, like, okay, well, you're, you're successful in X business. So I'm going to ask you for advice about my business. That's completely different. Um, and the guy thinking he's, he's flattered because, well, this guy asked me and he'll give an answer, but it, it, it he doesn't know anything about that business. So he can't really give Amen. good advice. Yeah. You know, I've, I've had, uh, I've had people ask me, well, you know, how come you don't do <clears throat> pardon me, finance and marketing and IT, um, you know, consulting. Shouldn't I mean, you're a consultant. Shouldn't you be doing that? And I said, well, I got to limit myself to something that I'm really competent at, okay? What I would really, really hate to do is to tell you, yeah, I'll help you with your finance stuff and then not succeed yeah. and then have you and then have you tell you know, your peers don't go to that guy. I would rather undersell and overdeliver. Yeah. Okay, or underpromise and overdeliver. Um, now, on the other hand, I'm going to continue to try to get, you know, wiser and wiser on those things that I don't know about. And if somebody asks me, hey, can you help me with this, and I can't do it, well, I'll get somebody within my own network who can help me. So, um... You have this great list of maxims you have on your website. I love maxims. Big fan of like Baltazar Gratian and other guys who just wrote aphorisms. I think uh, I, love, I love the idea of packing in as much wisdom as you can into a short amount of words. So how did you develop the, this list of maxims and can you share a few with us? Sure, sure. Well, um, I, was, uh, I was a professor at the uh, Air Command and Staff College which is uh, the Air Force's graduate school that they send the, the top uh, majors to every year for a year, sit in seminar. And while I was there, um, you know, teaching, I was also going off and giving seminars um, 
at, at other universities, at the NATO school, to, to you know, at foreign at, at, at foreign defense colleges as well. And everywhere I went, people would start asking me, "Hey, you, you mentioned these books and you mentioned these sayings on the board, and we have a list of them." And I realized, you know, I really need to put these on paper. So I, I came up with a list of maxims, and so, some of them are, you know, goodness breeds goodness. Seek balance in life. Truth doesn't change based on the rank of the recipient. If you have to eat a frog, staring at it won't make it go down any easier. <laughs> iron sharpens iron and bloom where you're planted. And so almost every one of these comes from real life experiences, you know, or multiple real life experiences. I love the one uh, bloom where you're planted. Because I think, especially for young people, because I think a lot of young people have this idea that in order to succeed in life or to really get something out of life, they have to go somewhere else, right? They got to go to the big city. They got to leave their state. Um, but I really think there's a, a virtue in deciding, you know what, I'm going to stick where I'm at and see what I can do here. And that's what I've done. Like, I, I mean, I live in Tulsa, Oklahoma still. A lot of people ask me, why don't you move to San Francisco, New York City, where there's sort of like there's more more connections it's like you know i like i like doing what i'm doing where i'm here right you know brett i think that's that's brilliant but those words came from a really good friend of mine scott bethel um used to be a general and now he's a consultant himself and we we used to we used to speak together um quite a bit we would go uh, do a tag team uh, on leadership and uh leadership development um occasionally and we would get the we would get the young kids that really had stars in their eyes. Okay, I really want to get ahead fast. What's my what is my quickest route to senior leadership? And we would tell them to bloom where you're planted. That you get promoted in any business, in any segment of industry by doing what your boss tells you to do. Okay? Um, not by fighting, okay? And so, like I said, you don't have to be, you don't have to always be the yes man, okay? You could do what your boss wants you to do by telling him that there's a better way to do it, okay? But that's how you bloom where you're planted. And a lot of people say, well, I don't like that job. You know, that's a, that's a crap job, you know, that's beneath me. But you know what? Sometimes bosses just want to see if you have the humility to do that job. They know that you're... You know, they know that you're um, capable. There's a great movie that, uh, 1964 movie called The Cardinal, um, uh, you know, produced by Otto Preminger, with uh, John Houston was an Academy Award nominee, and Tom Tryon was a, was a young priest who rose to be a cardinal. But he was, he was really good, and he, and he knew that he was smart. And early on, he asked his bishop, you know, for a really good posting, and the bishop sent him out into the hinterlands to work for in a small community that wasn't even a village. You know, and it was essentially to say, "Could you be humble?" Um, and he did. He bloomed where he was planted, and and he and he rose. And that's just a, it's a great story, and it's a great analogy for for getting ahead today in the world. Fantastic. Well, Tom, this has been a fantastic, really fascinating discussion. Um, we've, you've referenced a lot of books, your maxims, of course. Where can people find more about your work and like the books you recommend for becoming better strategists? 
Thanks, Brett. Um, they can go to my website. I have a, uh, uh, they can go to criticalthinkingsolutions.com or bgcps.com. That stands for Bluegrass Critical Thinking Solutions. Um, they can look me up on Facebook, uh, Google my name, Tom Rudy and Critical Thinking, um, and, and it'll come up with the, with the website. And on the website, they can, uh, you can read my maxims. You can read. You can look at my reading list. It's available for everybody. Um, articles that I've written and um, ones that I uh, that I you know that I recommend other people read. Um, I, I just I hope everybody uh, you know can be intrigued enough to, to find one book off that reading list that they haven't seen um, and and go read it. Awesome. Well, it's a good list. I, I've checked it. I love a good reading list and uh, got a few in my queue now because of it. <laughs> thanks, Brett. All right. Well, Tom Ruby, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure talking to you too, Brett. Thanks. Our guest today was Tom Ruby. He is the owner of Bluegrass Critical Thinking Solutions, and you can find out more information about Tom and his work at bgcts.com. Again, that's bgcts.com. Check it out. Lots of great free content uh, out there you can read and peruse and uh, add to your strategic repertoire. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you like this podcast and you're getting something out of it, I'd really appreciate it if you go to iTunes or Stitcher or whatever it is you use to listen to the podcast and give us a review. That will really help us out and your feedback will help us out as well. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.